Hey, I'm Anthony Avila. And I'm Andrea Murciano, and welcome to Bridging the Gap podcast. Today's topic is about health literacy. What is it, and what can we do about it? So thank you guys for joining us today. We are very excited to introduce to you guys Dr. Geyer. Well, some, I mean, some of what we're seeing in terms of the public's response relates to the topic that we're going to discuss today. Yeah. It's, low, it's low health literacy. And how do you, how do you get people who don't understand, what is a virus? People don't know what a virus is. You know, how do you spread viruses? Why is nobody immune to this virus? Again, it's the, the general public does not understand this information. And you can take a look at our national leadership as well as our state leadership with some of the governors. I mean, the governor of Georgia was, he was one of the last states to, you know, enact any kind of um, social distancing requirement because he didn't quote, know that if you were asymptomatic, you could, you know, spread the virus. It's like, we, we can see what low health literacy and other things, other factors, certainly political factors in, at play, but low health literacy is a big piece of the problem. I was watching on the news or my mom was telling me about that um, there was someone who was basically saying coronavirus isn't real and he was fighting against right. the police because of it. Right. Oh, this is a real issue. Oh, <laughs> like, is. We can't even go to school. This is a real issue. Yeah. And I think there's other people that are like, this is all fake. I mean, yep. it, it's a hard, it's really it's hard. difficult. Right. I, yeah. When I, when I stopped to get gas a couple of weeks ago, um, the guy who was working there was explaining to me how this is, you know, from a lab, the virus is from a lab in Wuhan, you know, that, that they turned it loose on, on the world, you know, and it's, it's like, this is what the Chinese have done to punish us. And it's, there's just there's a lot of reasoning. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. Interesting times. Very much so. <laughs> yes, Dr. Gar, we are very happy to have you on here today. I know that you, we talked to you when this was just an idea and we hadn't really had anything on the ground going, but we'd really love to hear about like, who's Dr. Geyer and what are you doing today and what, what events got you to become the Dr. Geyer that we know and love today? Well, that's hard to know what you, you know, I don't know what you see, of course. Um, <laughs> about your background. Okay, so um, I came to the University of Florida as an undergraduate student. The Gainesville that I came to is a very, was a very different place from the Gainesville that you two know and love. There was no Oaks Mall here. There was no academic advising office on campus. There were, I think we had reached 30,000 students for the first time, which was just like an overload of, of students. The, num the percent of men on campus outweighed the number of women on campus. So again, it was just a very different environment. So I was a pre-med student, like so many who will watch this podcast are. And by the time I got into my senior year, realized that I really didn't want to allocate the time for medicine. Um, I wanted to do something in healthcare, but um, medicine was not any, any longer um, a passion of mine. And so I found dietetics and all of the same science courses um, transferred seamlessly you know, into the dietetics program. 
So uh, I ended up graduating with my bachelor's degree from food science and human nutrition in the dietetics major and went to work in one of our local hospitals that's no longer here. At one time, we had three hospitals. Alachua General Hospital was the county hospital. And so I, when I graduated, I was required, as dietitians do, to complete an internship. And GH was kind enough to start an internship for me. It's really a funny story, way too long to tell in the podcast, but it's just, it's been really interesting with the doors that have opened, you know, in my life to take my, my life and my career in a direction that I could have never planned. Um, so anyway, I uh, finished my internship at AGH and then they hired me as a clinical dietitian. And within the first 18 months, I realized that I did not have the skills needed to do, to be effective in my job. There were people that I couldn't connect with, that I, I, I could give them the science, I could explain their diabetes, I could help them understand their hypertension, but there was something missing in the connection. I would be talking to people, um, you know, when you're in healthcare, you talk to all the different health professionals and they have varying levels of training. Working in dietetics or nutrition, I was part of the food service operation. And so I also was responsible for not only training people in the public and keeping my colleagues in different health professions aware of what was happening in nutrition, but I also had to teach food service workers about personal hygiene and sanitation and temperature control to keep you know, foods out of the danger zone. And some of these folks didn't even have a high school diploma. So I ended up going back to school. I didn't know what I was missing in my training, but I realized I was always teaching somebody something. So I went back to school through the College of Education and learned how to teach. There was a special program available at that time for people who were health professionals to teach them how to teach. So um, again, very fortunate that that program was available. After I got my master's degree, I started having kids and I cut my time uh, back to part-time. I was, I had transitioned from the clinical side of the hospital over into the wellness center. They had a, a, the hospital had a wellness center. And I found that was really fascinating because people who are healthy and who want to stay well have a very different approach to life than people who are sick and who are discovering, oh my goodness, I love to eat um, fried, fried food. And you're telling me I can't have fried food anymore, or I have to greatly restrict it. So um, wellness was a whole new, whole new ball game. I also was engaged with consulting in some of our local rural hospitals who were too small to have a full-time dietitian on staff. When I got my PhD, I went back through the College of Education to do that. I got a phone call not too long after graduation from Food Science and Human Nutrition. And they got my name from some of the dietitians that I used to work with at the hospital. They were looking for someone to join the faculty for just one semester to help work with their dietetic interns. So I went for one semester and it turned out to be a 10-year commitment <laughs> because the director of the program left the very next semester. And so they asked me to stay on, the faculty asked me to stay on, and then I competed for the position and ended up staying there for 10 years. After 10 years of academics, I was looking for something different. Dietetics was going in a direction. Um, it wasn't going in a direction. The other professions were moving toward a more advanced degree to enter practice. Dietetics wasn't doing that. And so I wanted to do something different. 
and I ended up, uh, my phone rang, uh, getting a call from Suwannee River Area Health Education Center, Suwannee River AHEC, where I spent the next 13 years working as the associate director, um, working with student education. So first year medical students, PA students, pharmacy students. The MPH program was launched while I was at Suwannee River AHEC. So I've been part of that program from the very beginning and uh, worked to put MPH students in meaningful um, experiences for their research projects. My phone rang again in 2011, and I was invited to return to the University of Florida to launch the minor in health disparities, which it took about 18 months to get everything up and running and get the approvals uh, that were needed. And students started to enroll and you all keep coming and it's just a, a wonderful, delightful experience. So that's a little bit about my background, everything that I have learned in the clinical setting, in the public health setting, and in the academic environment is what I try to weave into my teaching and yeah, into the courses, the, the projects that all of you uh, get to work on come from my experience, realizing what I didn't know and having to develop the skills. I'm, I'm, my hope is that all of you will start on more level ground with your knowledge and skills and not feel like you were in a ditch like I did initially. What I realized too, this is interesting, the questions that I had about what was missing in my training, what was missing was missing from the research. I've been able to answer my question about what was missing by reading how we've discovered about health, what we've discovered about health disparities and health equity and cultural competence. Literacy was always something very important to me, but the, con the construct of health literacy that we're gonna talk about uh, in more detail today is again, uh, a new construct really. It's only been around for tw uh, 20, 20, 25 years. Much has changed and it's really fun to be able to go full circle and be able to answer the questions that you had through the work that you are now engaged with doing, which is again, what I do. So I guess to start off um, on the topic of health literacy specifically, what, what does health literacy mean to you? That's a great question. There's no standard definition, okay, of health literacy. I think the goal of health literacy is, is probably the best way to, to describe it. Health literacy is having the knowledge, knowing where to go to get health information that you can understand and use to make informed decisions that improve your health. It requires a lot of skills. It requires literacy skills like reading, asking questions, math skills. Also, health literacy has to do with cost-benefit analysis. We see a lot of um, decisions being made uh, right now with the pandemic cost-benefit analysis. Do we open up the economy or do we err on the side of caution because we know people are going to die if we don't continue to social distance? So uh, again, health literacy is, is a big, broad construct with a lot of skills that are needed. Is there any difference between health literacy and literacy just in itself? Because I think to most people, those two would kind of be considered the same thing. That's a great question, Anthony. Um, Unfortunately, when you read the literature, you see the two terms used almost interchangeably. Literacy is, is a foundation for health literacy because to have health literacy, you need to be able to read and you need to be able to uh, perform some basic uh, math calculations. 
the thinking process, the reasoning process, all of that that goes, uh, you know, along with, with being able to read and have literacy, proficient literacy, is also required for health literacy. But health literacy has additional requirements because it's a more robust Thank you so much for sharing, Dr. Geyer. I think highlighting the fact that health literacy and literacy is different um, will give it will you know give us a better understanding of what you know what we're missing to I guess improve um, health literacy for you know our future patients or you know for physician patient interaction. So who who is affected by health literacy? Is there any specific like vulnerable populations, or is it just the general public? Well, health literacy, the construct came out of health education and behavior. Um, in fact, the definition that was used in health education for years is almost exactly the same as the most widely published definition that you see um, in the literature today. So who's affected by, by literacy and health literacy? Everybody. Only national um, studies found that only 12% of, of American adults have proficient health literacy, meaning that they know where to go for reliable information. And when they read about health, they know how to use the information, they can understand it. The 12% of, of folks with proficient health literacy, a lot of them are health professionals and public health professionals. Because um, as I stated earlier, if you don't have strong literacy skills, it's difficult, you can't have strong health literacy skills. The other part is that if you don't have a good base of science uh, to understand health information, because health, to understand health, you have to understand science. So there are a number of people who are very well educated. We see them right now in the national government and we see them in the state governments making decisions about health and they don't have enough health background to, to understand sometimes the, the importance of the decisions, the gravity of the decisions that they're making. So you could be a CPA, you could be a businessman, you could be an attorney. If you are, chances are the last science course you took was in 10th grade when you had biology. So again, you can be very literate, have proficient literacy skills, but your health literacy is going to be compromised because you don't understand science. Now, you mentioned also that the percentage of people that are health literate tend to be the health professionals themselves. So... It, where is the divide, like where health professionals do not understand that other citizens don't have the health literacy they do, and the lack of communication between the two populations causes problems? So like, what, what are the problems there, and why don't they understand the divide? All of us become blind to what we know, and we forget after so many years of specializing and learning about preparing ourselves to enter our chosen professions we forget how much time we've spent learning about science and, and studying medical terminology. And, you know, there's, there's a, a language in healthcare. It's, you know, and we take, many people take classes to learn it, just like they take classes to learn Spanish. And we forget sometimes, and we lapse into our special shorthand language, you know, of medical terminology when we're talking to patients. I, I liken it uh, to going to South Florida. I don't speak Spanish, um, but there are a few words that I can pick up. Um, and there are many words that sound like their English counterparts. And mm -hmm. so I can track along and pick up some words and get a general idea about what's happening when two people are speaking Spanish to each other. Uh, but then there are some words like pregnant, for example. Anthony, how do we say pregnant in Spanish? 
Embarrassada. Uh huh. Embarrassada. That sounds like embarrassed, doesn't yeah, it? it, it yes. Yeah. So here's the problem with when you're listening to another language, some words are going to sound like their counterparts, you know. But there's an example of a word that's totally different. So when people come to see health professionals, if we're not careful, if we're not clear with our communication, if we use medical terms or if we lapse into jargon, people lose the meaning of the conversation. And they might hear some words that again, take them in a different direction uh, because it sounds like something or it sounds like a concept they think they understand. So, um, so much of the work in health literacy has to do with clear communication, simple communication. And it's not that, um, understanding a message is always going to change your behavior uh, because all of us know quite a bit about a number of topics and we don't uh, do everything that we know to do every single day but um, certainly you have to understand and have some knowledge before you can um, make decisions about changing your behavior to have a healthier lifestyle so communication is key you you told us a story i don't know if you wouldn't mind sharing about the um the patient who read um, Take Once Daily? So again, this is a, a true story. There was a man who um, went to see his physician. He was sick and he got a prescription. He took it to the pharmacy, gave it to the pharmacist, uh, waited to have it filled. And when the pharmacist um, handed his prescription, asked the man if he had any questions. And the man shook his head, no, I don't have any questions. Um, he was really happy. In fact, he, he knew exactly what he needed to do with that prescription because the, there were three words that were written for the instructions. Take, O-N-C-E, daily. And so the man, simple instructions, I'm gonna go right home and do it. So he did. And um, what I didn't tell you about this man is that Spanish was his first language, not English. So again, talking about words, O-N-C-E in English is once. O-N-C-E in Spanish is once, 11. And the man went home and he took once because again, English wasn't his first language. That he didn't die, that he did get to the E-D in time to save his life. But again, it's just something you would think so simple, only three words, three small words. How could that be confusing for somebody? And it's because again, we don't think broadly about culture and language and the fact that, oh my goodness, here we have this virus that six months ago was in China and now it's all over the world. We are so connected to one another, it's just, really, uh, again, a changing world. Thank you so much for sharing that story. So one of the other aspects that I thought was important to talk about health literacy is, um, I know you mentioned previously how, you know, it's very, it's a cycle. Lack of literacy, health literacy, and it goes on for generations. Right. So how do we break this cycle? You know, what are, what are some things that we can do? Again, people who don't read often come from family systems that don't read. So when you have children who drop out of high school, oftentimes um, it's, they have parents that don't have um, strong educations themselves. So those of us in health, if we want to promote health literacy, 
we should be really concerned about what's happening in our schools, what's happening with the literacy of our population. Because it, it's not that kids who don't read well have bad teachers or uncaring teachers. The most influential uh, person in the life of a child is their family, you know, their, their parents, their caregivers, their grandparents. And so when children come from homes where there are no books and where literacy and reading aren't um, pleasurable activities, and when the value of advanced education isn't something that's discussed and described as being within reach for that child, um, then that child grows up um, with very different values. So we should be concerned with literacy programs for the family system. And certainly, you know, locally, we have a, an organization, Gainesville for All, that's very actively involved with promoting literacy. Um, they've launched a program that United Way offers called Reading Pals. And so in the schools where children's reading scores are the weakest, Reading Pals is has been started so that students can work as mentors and tutors um, to help kids strengthen their skills and Gainesville for All is also now working with parents as well. They're going to start an um, early learning center to start working with women from the time of pregnancy through delivery and again continue to build skills within the family system. So yes, thank you so much for sharing about, you know, why it's so hard to break these cycles, but I definitely think programs like Reading Pals has the capacity to reach into the communities and make a change. I guess the next big question is, what can we do? I guess, what can we do as future health professionals? What can we do as health students to kind of facilitate this better communication between the healthcare system and the patient? Right, yeah, that, those are great questions. Certainly the courses that you take now, learning about you know, cultural differences, the one thing I have not been able to find that I think would be really valuable would be um, a course in how to teach, how to put together objectives, how to put together, I mean, look at this podcast. You all have put this together from scratch. And I, I remember when you were first getting started, how much, how much hard work it was because you, you had to think through you know, the goals and the objectives of what you wanted to do and, and, and put your program together first, then fill in the, the pieces with, you know, finding speakers. It would be great for, for you all to learn how to do that. Because as health professionals, I mean, as a dietitian, I was always teaching. All health professionals teach. And so it's really valuable to know something about the process of how do people learn how do you motivate them to change their behavior? How can you construct a simple message using plain language guidelines? All of, I mean, the, you, can, you can read on your own and you can study on your own, but it's really helpful to have at least a course to put it together for you, to take you systematically through the process of learning how to teach and how people learn. A lot of the other things that, that you can do to prepare, certainly uh, the volunteering uh, that you do in the community. That's professional development. Uh, you know, we call it, we call it volunteering, we call it extracurriculars, but it's your professional development and working in the mobile outreach clinic, working with reading pals in some of the schools. Uh, these are all ways that you develop skills and you learn about people and their differences. 
and it's important to know how different people are so that you can understand you know how, what kinds of motivators to use and, and uh, learning how to speak simply um, using non-medical uh, terminology is, is again it takes practice and so that's what you what do you do when you when you volunteer so um, I know that we had talked about this before in, our, in the previous meeting, but what are some ways that we can men measure literacy? Is there a way that we can measure literacy? Because um, I know that there's a lot of data out there, but you know, it's a little bit unclear. Right. So what you can measure, you can measure the, the sub-skills associated with literacy. So what's one of the skills? There are like six skills associated with learning to read. One of them is called word recognition. The ability to look at a word and recognize it and say it correctly out loud. So we could give people reading lists and see what their vocabulary is like, see what words they recognize and can pronounce. There's a tool called the newest vital sign and it uses an ice cream label and asks a series of questions about math, really math problems. You know, if you have a half cup of ice cream, you know, and you're, you're restricted to so many grams of fat in a day, can you eat the whole thing? And so again, you can measure math skills. There's, you can't measure health literacy per se in using just one test any more than you can diagnose an illness from one symptom. If you tell me you have a headache, I'm not gonna tell you you have a malignant glioblastoma, okay? I don't have enough information to tell you that. Now, a headache is one symptom, I could give somebody the realm reading the rapid estimate of adult uh, reading in medicine, literacy in medicine, which is a word recognition test to see if somebody can read. It's not going to tell me what their health literacy is, but it will give me a sense of you know how well they read and what their vocabulary is like. So um, again, we have to have multiple points of information to be able to determine someone's health literacy. I don't know that that what value there is honestly in measuring trying to measure someone's health literacy best practices today say that we should be evaluating our teaching tools and not our patients so making sure that we have simply written documents that people can understand that they're they're clear that we have a lot of white space that the reading level doesn't go beyond sixth seventh grade that's really what we should be focused on. The only way you really know what someone knows and understands about their health is to talk to them. It's not a, there's no lab test that we can, you know, inject a needle and pull out and measure their health literacy. But we do want to know what our patients understand if they have diabetes. We do want to know what they understand so that we can ensure that they're safe at home. So you mentioned communication between professionals and the patient, the health professional and the patients, and that is very important to understanding of what the patient even knows in the first place. And I remember you in class would talk about the teach back method, and I have myself applied this method many times, learning biology or chemistry oh, yeah. with friends, and we're just learning in general. So could you just talk about what the teach back method is and why it's extremely important that health professionals should use it more often? Sure. You know, it, it's really important to think about the kinds of training that we get while we're in school, because the way that we're trained, we develop habits from the way that we practice from the time that we're first instructed about how to interact with patients. 
many physicians, nurses, and pharmacists today will say, I would like to use TeachBack, but it takes too much time. TeachBack is nothing more than a conversation with your patient, interacting with them in a two-way conversation. One-way conversation is limited because you don't know what message a person is receiving. It's not until they talk back to you either and ask questions or they rephrase or, or somehow respond. That's when you know what kind of message a person has understood from a communication. So for example, if I have a patient with, um, with asthma, I would have a conversation with him and explain the important points of what asthma is all about, what, what's happening in his body. I would be encouraging him to ask questions. And then at the very end of the conversation, um, I would say something like, all right, so, so, um, so John, you're going to go home and I know your wife is going to ask you about asthma. How are you going to explain it to her? And so John's going to tell me about asthma and I as the health expert, I'm gonna be listening for the key points to make sure that he understands the message and is gonna be safe at home. And then just before he walks out, I'm gonna say, okay, well, I know you're gonna have that inhaler with you and we practiced how to use that. Why don't you show me how you're going to use that? Okay, because your wife is probably gonna be concerned. How are you gonna demonstrate that you're using your inhaler for your wife? Again, I can watch and see what they do, and I can see if they're uh, properly uh, using their inhaler. Again, it's my job to make sure they're safe when they go home. So much of the way that we teach is just downloading in a one-way conversation to, to our patients. This is what I want you to do, blah, blah, blah. We don't know if they understand what we're saying. And again, we could go back to the onse or we could go back to the embarazada. We could go back to so many words that, again, we don't know what people are understanding until we get some kind of response back from them. The two worst questions we could ever ask. Number one, do you have any questions? <laughs> because if people say no, we're going to assume, oh, I've done a good job. When in fact, the patient may not understand well enough the information about their health to even have a question and they don't know what they don't know. So do you have any questions? Um, do you understand what I've just said? Again, adults are gonna say yes, because they're not gonna know if they don't understand. They hear your words, you're speaking English, so they assume that they understand. And no adult is gonna say, I don't understand because they don't wanna look incompetent. So teach back, it's the way to know for sure what your patient understands and plans to do when they go home. So kind of to sum up everything about health literacy, we kind of have two like finishing questions. Okay. If you could change one aspect of the current healthcare system, what would it be? I would put education, patient education in as a line item in the budget with money and I would establish um, a patient education department in every hospital and clinic. Wow, that's awesome. So we were having a conversation with um, other health students. And one of, the, one of the things that really stuck out to me was we're studying for STEP. You know, we have, you know, we do have classes on health disparities, you know, health culture, stuff like that. But if it's not on the STEP, I'm not studying for it. Right, right. So what that's a problem. What <laughs> response can we give to that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that is honestly a real problem because what you find in medical school is that we choose people who are good test takers. 
What does STEP do? STEP finds people who are good test takers, doesn't help us identify the best doctors, doesn't help us find the best clinicians, but it does help us find people who can take tests. My understanding is that this year at UF, 40% of the graduate programs are not going to require the GRE. That's, that's incredible. So just to clarify, does that mean uh, you're talking about entering into like PhD master's programs? Yes, graduates. So, you know, for medical school, you have the MCAT. Dental school, you have the DAT. You have pharmacy, the PCAT and you have the GRE, okay, for graduate school. And so what we're, if we don't use that standardized test, it'd be like throwing out the MCAT. So is that a new installment into this upcoming year, or has that been already in place? You know, there has been discussion about the value of the GRE for years, just as there is discussion about the value of the MCAT. Okay. It's a standardized test. It shows certain kinds of skills. But if you really want to know something about a student's success, you get better information from looking at their GPA because that demonstrates the day-to-day-to-day progress, the day-to-day-to-day learning, not performance on a standardized test. I understand why the test is there because you have to pass licensing you know, and board exams, but there's too much weight put on, on the exam. And so you get into medical school and what Andrea asked is exactly right. I mean, students don't spend time with health disparities and cultural competence and health literacy if they, if it's available, they, they go to the courses where they're going to be getting information they need for the step exams. And I would question the wisdom, honestly, of so many exams over testing. Okay. In medical school, we want to find the best clinicians. How do, you, how do you develop a good clinician? It's by teaching them the value, okay, of teach back, of health literacy, of cultural competence, of health equity, health disparities, social determinants of health. That's not on the step exam, however. So it's, it's yeah. So the, this is why we need more people like the two of you and others that I see in class who, um, you're a different generation, you have different values, you are the next generation of leaders and decision makers. And so, you know, what changes will you promote? What, what will be part of your legacy? How will you impact the profession of medicine, you know, by your participation? You know, my hope is that you will, you know, really get involved uh, and do more than, uh, you know, go to your clinic or your practice or, you know, get involved with policy, get involved with legislation, get involved with the AMA or, um, you know, whichever national organization uh, would be appropriate. You know, get involved on the national level and be part of the decision-making team that steers medicine into the 21st century. So you kind of answered my question already. So the question that I was going to ask is what kind of message do you want to give uh, students aspiring to, to become health professionals? Yeah. Yeah. I want to see you get involved. I want to see you get involved. Something I'm pushing more and more, and I can't do it until I probably get back in a classroom, but I really want to see more of you involved in leadership at the national level. Uh, there's no reason not to be. AMSA is a great way to get involved with leadership at the national level. There are more pre-med 
members of AMSA than medical student members. Mm. There are so many open positions in AMSA for leaders. I, in fact, I got a, um, a call from, from uh, Ben Dong, who graduated a couple years ago. He's um, been the, the um, health policy chair in AMSA. And he contacted me and said, hey, please, you know, get the word out. Let people know that we, you know, need visionary people. And we want students who understand health disparities, you know, to get involved at AMSA in some of these leadership positions. Public health is another place where there's a, a student um, membership opportunity. Why wouldn't we get involved with APHA as student leaders and help lead the future, okay? Uh, for public health as well as medicine and the other professions. I agree, and that's very inspirational. I appreciate that. It's just not to not to have that tunnel vision, but look at the bigger picture of what uh, impact you can have, and not to I mean honestly not limiting yourself limiting yourself because it can be very easy to limit yourself and say, oh, I'm a student. What impact can I have that uh -huh. creates such drastic changes? When in reality, we have the tools necessary to create an amazing changes, changes Absolutely. that can. And that can improve the lives of so many people. And I really love that answer. That was very inspirational. Well, national and also the state. I mean, you know, the, the laws in the state of Florida affect your life more than the federal laws. There are so many laws that are passed every day and rules by the um, Department of Health, Florida Department of Health. We need to be involved in leadership in our state as well. And I, you know, I'm so curious how the world is going to look after Corona because Currently, we're so dependent on, you know, places like the Florida Florida Health Department, right? You know, on information about what's going on, is that going to change your, you know, the way that we look at health? And and I know this was a horrible situation, but I really do hope that the good that comes out of it is that you know there's changes to the way that we think about health. Yeah, I I hope so. I you know I hope that we as a nation take a look at our low health information because we don't teach about health in our schools and we need to be. And why don't we teach about health? Because the standardized tests, we focus on, you know, teaching the subjects that kids are going to be tested on while they're in school and not what's going to help make them the best citizens necessarily. Thank you so much for, you know, coming onto our podcast and sure you know, talking to us about health literacy. You know, we've, so, so far in the podcast, we've talked about uh, you, Dr. Geyer, so much, <laughs> kind of the inspiration behind it. You know, how can we, how can we share information about health disparities? How can we reach into the community and talk to the leaders who are, you know, leading the way for change? Right. So, you know, you're only, here's the thing. You're only limited by your imagination. You really are. And, and you and Anthony are leaders, you know, you, you just, it's just who you are, you know, and I would encourage both of you think outside the box, you know, look for opportunities. I mean, this podcast is such a great opportunity again, to, to take the message beyond the, the four walls of the classroom that we all share, you know, together at the university of Florida, you know, why aren't more universities offering programs like this for undergrads? Why, why isn't, you know, medical education all over this idea of the trickle down and, and working with pre-meds to teach them the topics that the medical school curriculum is too full to really accommodate? 
the change is going to happen when you all are leaders because the folks who are currently there don't know what's missing because it's always been missing. That's, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, that's very moving. Yeah, that's good. I, I appreciate that, Dr. Carr. That's really Thank nice. you so much. We really appreciate you coming and, you know, talking with us. It's always, it's such an inspiration every time, you know, we talk to you. It's always like a constant reminder that what, we, what we're doing does seem small, but you never know the chain reaction that can occur. That's exactly what it is, you know, and each of you is a pebble thrown in the, in the water, you know, and you're going to have your own ripples and you're going to go in your direction. And as long as you continue to take the message with you, with everybody you come across, they in turn are going to be their own pebbles, you know, in, in the stream too. So yeah, it, it just, it just takes people who are willing to open their mouths and, and talk about what, is important to them. You all inspire me. Uh, there's been no greater impact on me as a person or my life or my career than these last nine years at the University of Florida. You know, getting to know all of you and your stories and, you know, I hear people talking about these entitled students all the time and I, I tell them, I let them go through their thing. Oh, this generation, they're so entitled. Oh, this generation, da 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 da. And then I, I wait till they finish and I go, I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> these are not, these are not the students that I know. And I'm not telling you, I only know 10 students. I mean, I, I run across more students than I think a lot of other people do. And you guys are just amazing. And you are going to make the world, you already have made the world a better place. And your generation is going to continue to improve things. So I'm excited for the years ahead. So am I. And I, I hope that we can also maybe maybe have you on for a future episode and talk about a different topic. I think that'd be amazing. Sure. We Let's talk it. about life and the future. Hey, what, yeah. what would it all, what would a perfect world look like, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. These are the questions that we should be asking. Yeah. Yeah, we should. Well, Dr. Geyer, we really thank you for your time. It was a pleasure sure. to have you. And I, I'm excited for people to listen to what you have to say. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Dr. Geyer has been an inspiration to start this podcast and her vast knowledge about health disparities and specifically health literacy shows the, the kind of impact it can have on a person's life. And I hope this episode continues to inspire you to seek positive change in your community.